the Lord had said, had said to Abram, and Abraham and Sarai and Sarah. We're talking about the same people here. So just bear with me. Verse 1, the Lord had said to Abram, leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. Look at verse 4. So Abram left as the Lord had told him. What would compel a person to pull up stakes in his own hometown and head out for places unknown, dragging his wife and nephew Lot with him to who knows where? Seemingly, this is about the most insane and irresponsible action anyone could take. Who in their right mind does something like this? What could Abraham have been thinking? <laughs> Was he thinking? What circumstances fell into place that gave Abraham the resolve to do what appears to the onlooker as a very irrational act? I mean, put yourself in his sandals for a moment. Would you have responded this way? Be honest. There's no history here. There's none. Abraham does not know the God of the Bible. He worships idols. He worships creations of his own hand. He worships God's, little g, passed down from his father Terah to him. He was an idolater. Same as everybody else <clears throat> in the days of the Tower of Babel. Ah, well, I wonder if that could be the clue. Think about this. I mean, what do we know about idols, the, the things that men make and say are gods? Well, David gives us this account. He writes, our God, our God is in heaven. He does whatever he pleases. But their idols, referring to the nations, are silver and gold made by the hands of men. They have mouths, but they cannot speak. Eyes, but they cannot see. They have ears, but they cannot hear. Noses, but they cannot smell. They have hands, but they cannot feel. Feet, but they cannot walk. Nor can they utter a sound with their throats. Those who make them will be like them, and so will all who trust in them. Psalm 115, verses 3 through 8. I read that, and I think about that. And if there were one word that we could use to label the activity, the activity now, of idols, it could be the word impotent. Impotent. Name any activity characteristic of someone alive and well, and the idols of the nations cannot do it. Not then, not now, not ever. Name any activity. David emphasizes this when after saying they have mouths but cannot speak, he adds the thought, 
nor can they utter a sound with their throats. This is not redundant. David is saying that the idols cannot converse in the language of men, but beyond that, they cannot even grunt out a sound of sorts like the beasts of the field who at least have a way of letting their presence be known. My cat, Sabrina, cannot talk the language of men, but at least every morning, every morning, I know she is alive and hungry as she sits outside the bedroom door in the hallway meowing for us to get up, get out of bed, and provide her with some food. Even the beasts of the field let us know that they're alive. They're alive and well. Think then of Abram and Sarai, idolaters, idolaters by practice, who all of their lives have ordered their religious allegiance around maybe a carving of stone or a, a casting of metal or whatever. Impotent and immobile. As Isaiah writes, they lift it, he's referring to the idols, they lift the idol to their shoulders and carry it. They set it up in its place and, and, and there it stands. And from that spot it cannot move. Though one cries out to it, it does not answer. It cannot save him from his troubles. Isaiah 46 verse 7. That's, that's the idols of the nations. There you go. Jeremiah adds, Who should not revere you, O king of the nations? This is your due. Among all the wise men of the nations and in all their kingdoms, there's no one like you. They are all senseless and foolish. They are taught by worthless wooden idols. Hammered silver is brought from Tarshish and gold from Uphaz. What the craftsmen and goldsmith have made is then dressed in blue and purple all made by skilled workers. But the Lord is the true God. He is, get it now, the living God, the eternal king. When he is angry, the earth trembles. The nations cannot endure his wrath. Tell me this, these gods who did not make the heavens and the earth will perish from the earth and from under the heavens. But God made the earth with his power. He founded the world by his wisdom, stretch out the heavens by his understanding. When he thunders, the waters in the heavens roar. He makes clouds rise from the ends of the earth. He sends lightning with the rain and brings out the wind from the storehouses. Everyone is senseless and without knowledge. Every goldsmith is shamed by his idols. His images are a fraud. They have no breath in them. They are worthless, the objects of mockery. When their judgment comes, they will perish. Jeremiah 10, verses 7 through 15. Now you might think that such idolatry is for third world cultures of the world. Places like the Amazonians in Amazon or the Aborigines from Australia or the Hindus from India or the Buddhists from China. 
You might think, we Americans, <laughs> we would never be so foolish as to bow down to a piece of wood or a casting of precious metal. I was talking to Rick, Laurie's husband, about the fact that America, the USA, does not seem to have any special mention in Scripture. Have you thought about that? It's, as all, it's almost as though the Holy Spirit has glossed over our very existence, except, except possibly for the description in the Revelation which describes the worship of Babylon, the very nation, emerging from the ruins of the Tower of Babel, Genesis 11. And it describes Babel in these terms, Babylon, when the kings of the earth who committed adultery with her, and it's not talking about sexual uh, things with regard to a city, but it's talking, talking about the fact that they have deserted God and went a-whoring after other gods, and God considers that to be adultery. So here's the way he words it. When the kings of the earth who committed adultery with her and shared her luxury see the smoke of her burning, they will weep and mourn over her. Terrified at her torment, they will stand off afar and cry, Woe, woe, oh great city, oh Babylon, city of power. I think of the many um, cities of power that we have in the United States. Probably New York City comes to mind, San Francisco, another one, Chicago, another one, Philadelphia, another one. Detroit at one time, but Detroit didn't do it too well. Oh, city of power. In one hour, your doom has come. The merchants of the earth will weep and mourn over her because no one buys their cargoes anymore. Cargoes of gold, silver, precious stones and pearls, fine linen, purple, silk, and scarlet cloth, every sort of citron wood, and articles of every kind of ivory, costly wood, Bronze, iron, marble, cargoes of cinnamon, spice, incense, myrrh, frankincense, cargoes of wine and olive oil, fine flour and wheat, cattle, sheep, horses, carriages, bodies and souls of men. Wow. Opulent wealth, you see. They will say, the fruit you longed for is gone from you. All your riches and splendor have vanished, never to be recovered. The merchants who sold these things and gained their wealth from her will stand far off, terrified at her torment. They will weep and mourn and cry out, Whoa, whoa, oh great city, dressed in fine linen, purple and scarlet, and glittering with gold, precious stones and pearls. In one hour such great wealth has been brought to ruin. Every sea captain, all who travel by ship, the sailors and all who earn their living from the sea, will stand far off, and when they see the smoke of her burning, they will exclaim, was there ever a city like this great city? And they will throw dust on their heads, and with weeping and mourning cry out, woe, woe, oh great city, where all who had ships on the sea became rich through her wealth. In one hour she has been brought to ruin. Rejoice over her, O heaven. Rejoice, saints and apostles and prophets. God has judged her for the way she treated you. Revelation 18, verses 9 through 20. 
I don't know if that's America, but you know what? It sure sounds like America. Or it sure sounds like the cities of America. And it sure sounds what America is doing to the saints, the prophets, and the apostles in our day. I just heard on the news this morning some football player, after uh, making his first touchdown in the game, kneeled in the end zone and said a prayer to God, and he was reprimanded and punished for doing that. Do you know $3 trillion, $3 trillion with a T, are overseas from America as the merchants of America endeavor to protect their income and their profits by investing in foreign banks with American dollars. America has its idols. It has its dollars. See all the gold ads? Buy gold on television. <laughs> Buy silver. Many Americans have abandoned their Christian roots. And by the way, the number one terrorist threat listed on Homeland Security, our Homeland Security, lists evangelical Christians as the number one enemy of America. Any wonder that the tide is turning towards the persecution of Christians? America's bow down to the dollar, to the wealth of the world. We have disowned the living God and opted for impotent idols. But money, your bank accounts, you're not going to save that. Jesus asked a very important question. What would it profit a man if he gains the whole world? And forfeits his soul. And then he asks a second question. What will a man give in exchange for his soul? Billionaires out there, millionaires out there. God needs your money. Can you buy your way out of hell? We've disowned the living God. This was Abraham and Sarai centuries ago, products of the Babel Tower and the idolatry fostered by its builders. But something, something stupendous happened. Something occurred which so shook Abraham to his core being that he could not ignore it. What was the something? Point two in your outline. Verse one, God spoke. The Lord had said, Abraham, leave your country. Go to a land that I will show you. Verse 4, so Abraham left as the Lord had told him. Verse 7, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to your offspring, I will give this land. Whoa, whoa, what is this? A God who talks. A God who speaks the language of men. A God who gives direction. A God who makes promises with no equivocation. A God that I do not carry on my shoulder, but one who appears to me. A God who is alive, 
whose voice thunders out commands for me to obey and promise me blessings if I do. An alive God, an active God, a God who intervenes in the ordering of my life as though he knew me and claimed me for his own. This is stupendous. How utterly revolutionary. The God who speaks. Oh, it had occurred once before when men had abandoned God for idols in the days before the flood. But Noah's flood taught his descendants nothing. They soon reverted to their idolatry and God was as silent as ever. Till Abraham, till Sarai. Once again, God broke silence as he abandoned the nations to their superstition and lies and reached down to two nobodies to make of them a nation of people who would listen to the God who speaks. Wow. Think about that. The writer of Hebrews puts it this way. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. Hebrews 1, verse 1 and 2. Or again, we are warned, he writes, but you have come to Mount Zion. You have come to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all men, to the spirits of righteous men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth. But now he has promised once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The words once more indicate the removing of what can be shaken, that is, created things so that what cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and with awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Hebrews chapter 12, 22 through 29. God spoke to Abraham and Sarai, and he spoke, has continued to speak throughout the Old Testament times. And his prophets have written it down. Do you know that no one in the day of judgment, no one in the day of judgment will be able to say, Oh, I didn't know. No one ever told me. Our God is the communicator. 
He has laid out before us in the Bible his plan, his will, his expectations, and his resolve. The only ones who will be surprised are those who have turned a deaf ear to him. Jesus explained to the crowds of his day, saying this, Then Jesus told them, You're going to have the light just a little while longer. Walk while you have the light before darkness overtakes you. The man who walks in the dark does not know where he's going. Put your trust in the light while you have it, so that you may become sons of the light. When he had finished speaking, Jesus left and hid himself from them. And even after Jesus had done all these miraculous signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet, Lord, who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason, they could not believe. Because as Isaiah says elsewhere, he has blinded their eyes and deadened their hearts so that they can neither see with their eyes nor understand with their hearts nor turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said this because he, listen to this, this is speaking about Isaiah. Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. John 12, 35 through 41, the words of Christ our Savior himself. Brethren, God has spoken, but are we listening? Let me tell you, Abraham and Sarah, listen. That must have been such a revolutionary day when God appeared to them in vision or in theophany and spoke. And what did he speak? Oh, wow. Well, he spoke a covenant. You have it here in our text. Notice, firstly, that if you're going to make a promise, the promises are only as good as the person behind the promise. You all know that, right? Father, trying hard to have some quality time with his family, says to his children, you know, I know of late that dad has been working very long hours and I haven't had much time to spend with you kids, but I promise that this Saturday we will grab our fishing gear and we're going to head off to Houghton Lake for a day of fun and fishing. But Friday night into Saturday... <laughs> Oh, a large squall rolls into the area. The wind is blowing so hard that it's raining horizontally. You've seen that at times. And it becomes obvious that the outing will have to be canceled. Dad's promise came to a screeching halt because while his intent was true and genuine, he could not, he could not control the weather, which, as it turned out, would have made it both foolish and dangerous if he had pressed on to keep his promise. So he has to relent. He has to say to his kids, eh, we'll have to do it another time. This is why the way it is with our promises. Because as human beings, we have no crystal ball to observe the future. And what is even more relevant, we have no power to change the future. 
we must bow to many externals that enable or disable our participation in life. Health issues. Some of you are struggling with those things right now. Money to afford things. Cooperation of friends and relatives. Your work schedule. The law or rules of the land in which you live. The Lees were talking about that at our mission conference. That there are certain rules in Romania that restrict what they can and cannot do in the Christian outreach of the gospel working with the youth of Bucharest. They got to abide by the rules or they're going to get arrested and shut down. Now what all this means and what is almost universally accepted is that when we make a promise to do something for someone or with someone, it is understood by the promise maker and by the promise recipient as well that we have every intent of complying with our promise but, but circumstances may arise which will force us to forfeit our decision. And unless we are pathological liars that nobody trusts, people will generally cut us some slack if we have to break our promise for unforeseen or uncontrollable events. That's the way promises work among men. But let me tell you that none of these limitations affect our promises as they apply from God. They do not apply to God because there are no unforeseen or uncontrollable events which arise to hamper God's promises. God is omniscient, which means he knows all, and he is omnipotent, which he controls all. He knows all and all there is to know about all. And no one nor thing, no thing, nothing can thwart his intent. Wow. Let me read it to you from scripture, from Isaiah. Remember the former things, those of long ago. I am God and there's no other. I am God. And there's no one like me. I make known the end from the beginning. From ancient times, what is still to come. I say, my purpose will stand and I will do what I please. From the east I summon a bird of prey. From a far off land, a man to fulfill my purposes. What I have said, that will I bring about. What I have planned, that will I do. Ooh, this sounds very different, doesn't it, from our promises. Isaiah 46, verse 9 through 11. Or again, I have revealed and saved and proclaimed, I and not some foreign God among you, you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, that I am God. Yes, and from ancient days I am He. No one can deliver out of my hand. When I act, who can reverse it? 
Isaiah 43, verse 12 and 13. Implied answer. So if I do something, there ain't nobody that can undo it. The psalmist agrees. I know that the Lord is great. That our God is greater than all gods. The Lord does whatever he pleases. In the heavens and on earth. In the seas and all their depths. Psalm 135, verse 5 and 6. And Solomon reminds us. There is no wisdom, there is no insight, there is no plan that can succeed against the Lord. The horse is made ready for the day of battle, but victory rests with the Lord. What I'm saying here that the promises are only as good as the person behind them. And when God makes a promise, we have God behind those promises who not only knows the future, but controls the future. So when we come to a covenant that God makes with Abraham, as we have here in our text, it's solid. It cannot be revoked. It will not be changed. Now what about this covenant? Well, point two, under B. It's a unilateral covenant. It is not a partnership. It is a covenant that is all of grace with no works. It's not an admixture of grace with works because if it has works in it, then grace is destroyed. Paul talks about that. As we read through the principal points of God's promise in our text, Genesis 12, notice the one-sided nature of the contract. Verse 1. Go to the land, I will show you. Verse 2, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. Verse 3, I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all people on earth will be blessed through you. Note the definitive assertions. I will, I will, I will. No equivocation, no ifs, ands, or buts, no conditions, no provisals, no maybes, no possibilities, no I will do my part if you do your part. No, none of this. Abraham is being addressed as a recipient of God's blessings, but not as a part. You know, in a partnership, each individual has his or her side of the agreement to which they must comply. And if they do not comply, then the contract becomes null and void. Let me ask you a question. Would you like your relationship with God to be based... Let me even ask it this way. Would you like your relationship to God to be based on 50% of your performance. That's fair, right? 50-50, we say. That's usually the way we think about partnerships, 50-50. Do you see yourself faithful to God and obedient to his laws 50% of the time? Solomon writes, this only have I found. God made man upright, but men have gone in search of many schemes. Ecclesiastes 7, verse 29. 
sin ruined what God made upright. And so much so that Isaiah tells us, all of us become like one who is unclean. Now notice this next phrase. And all our righteous acts, not, not our bad acts, all our righteous acts, the good things we do, I'm reading scripture, all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. What? Did I read that right? The good that I do is like a filthy rag. Let me read it on. We all shrivel up like a leaf and like the wind our sins sweep us away. Isaiah 64 verse 6. You know, everything we touch is tainted with sin and the wages of sin is death. Even the green leaves, symbolic of life and energy, they shrivel up, they cover the landscape with brown shriveled deadness which the wind sweeps away. And that's our legacy. That's what we produce. And this is why God's promise made to Abram and Sarai and their descendants must have and did have a one-sided covenant. In biblical times, such covenants were signed, sealed, and delivered in blood. Such covenants were taken very seriously, certainly based on more than making a verbal promise. This is, not, this is not evident in our text, Genesis 12, but it is evident in the meditation reading, Genesis 15, <clears throat> at what has been called the ratification of the covenant. Here in 12, God is just saying what the promise is going to be. We get over to 15, and that's where the covenant is actually uh, enacted or enforced. Of that chapter, verse 7 says, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldees. So, so we are some years later, right? I mean, and God is coming to Abraham and says, you know, I'm, I'm the God that said, go into, to a land that I'll show you. I'm the one that brought you out of Ur of the Chaldees to give you this land to take possession of it. But Abraham said, O sovereign Lord, how can I know that I shall gain possession of it? So the Lord had said to him, bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. And Abraham brought all these to him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. And then birds of prey came in on the carcasses, but Abraham drove them away. And as the sun was setting, Abraham fell into a deep sleeve, and a thick and dreadful darkness came upon him. And then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and ill-treated 400 years. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves. That's Egypt. And afterwards they will come out with great possessions. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking brazier or a fire pot without blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. And on that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said to your descendants, I give this land from the river of Egypt, that would be the Nile, right, to the great river, the Euphrates. Genesis 15, verse 7 and following. Now Jared has a chart <coughs> for us that he's going to put up. It's just a simple thing to kind of show 
what's being done here. All of the ingredients are here as part of the ritual of ratifying Old Testament covenants. Animals are sacrificed. They're divided into pieces left and right, forming a walkway or an aisleway between them. And there the parties involved in the transaction would walk together down covenant row between those slain animals, thereby signifying that upon forfeiture of their own lives, they vowed not to break the covenant being made that day between them. If this were a partnership covenant, we would expect God and Abraham to walk covenant row together, each sealing their part of the bargain by the blood of the animals slain and vowing not to break covenant upon penalty of death. But this is no normal ratification. Where is Abraham? Yes, he gathered the appropriate animals. Yes, he sacrificed them. Yes, he divided them left and right to form a walkway. Yes, as best he knows, Abraham is ready to do his part in keeping the covenant. But as we have already seen, men, because of sin, are incapable of knowing the future or controlling the future or even of 50% obedience to God's moral code. So if this covenant is to have any hope of fidelity and completion, it cannot depend on Abraham doing his part, as we say. His part will fail because he will fail. His good intentions will end in wishful thinking. His righteous act, his good deeds, will turn out filthy rags. The covenant will be stamped null and void. <coughs> and Abraham will shrivel and die and <coughs> be carried into the abyss along with all sinners. Now all of this being true, I ask again, <coughs> Where is Abram at the ratification of the covenant? Genesis 15. When Dee and I uh, signed uh, the mortgage to purchase our house on Mary Drive, <clears throat> we met in the realtor's office for the closing, and the realtor asked the buyers and the sellers alike, Is everyone here? They had a room, and they had one of those accordion doors between, you know, that divided the room. She pulled back the accordion door, and on the other side of the door were the sellers, and on this side of the door were us, Donna and me, as the buyers. She pulled the door open, and she says, Is everyone here? You see, the sellers were signing away their rights to the property, and we, the buyers, were signing our obligation to purchase the property. It was a two-sided contract, so everybody needed to be there. So I asked the question, 
Where is Abraham? In Genesis 15, the ratification of the covenant. Verse 12, Genesis 15. As the sun was setting, Abraham fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. ESV says, a thick, a, dr a dreadful darkness. Dreadful and great darkness. Hey that, hey, 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 that can't happen. Abraham, wake up. Wake up, Abraham. You have a job to do. You have to walk Covenant Row here. You have to ratify the covenant. This is no time for you to be sleeping. But Abraham didn't wake up. He was in a deep sleep, a dreadful darkness. He was in a coma of sorts. His eyelids were so heavy he couldn't open his eyes, let alone walk covenant row. And we think, whoa, this is terrible. At the very moment when God is willing to enter into agreement to bless Abraham and his descendants with all those I wills that we read about in Genesis 12, the man is conked out sound asleep. But on second look, it isn't terrible at all. Given what we know about man and their failures to keep their word, it's better if Abraham continues to sleep. It's better if he remains comatose. Oh, but then how, how will the promise come to be? How will the covenant be ratified and enforced and fulfilled? And, and who will see to it that all of its promises and conditions are kept? Can there even be a covenant without Abraham's participation? God, you have to do something. And God answers, verse 17 of Genesis 15. And when the sun had set and darkness had fallen, that same darkness that covered Abraham's eyes, a smoking brazier or fire pan with a blazing torch appeared and <clears throat> passed between those pieces. And on that day, listen how it's worded, on that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram. It doesn't say that Abraham made a covenant with God. Why the fire or torch? Our God is a consuming fire. Hebrews 12. Verse 29. Salvation, brethren, is not a partnership. God doing his part, you doing yours. That was the Galatian error. We have it in the New Testament. No, it is all 100% of God's doing. Abraham was a righteous man, but not righteous enough to contribute his share of a covenant agreement with the holy and perfect God. He was a good man. But as Jesus explained, not good enough. No one is good except God alone, said Jesus. Mark 10, verse 18. And so Jesus puts it to us <clears throat> and to all of his children. As he did here with Abraham in symbol form. He puts it out in word form. Jesus says, you did not choose me. You did not choose me, but I chose you 
And I appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. And then the Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. John 15, verse 10. You're blessed because of me, not because of you. The covenant is unilateral. It's all of grace. Not part grace, part works. It's not a partnership. It's all of God's doing from start to finish. You know what that does? That makes us feel about like this. And it makes God like this. Amen, right? Our God is a great God and greatly to be praised. And our roots go all the way back to Genesis 12 and Genesis 15 when God took Abraham and set him over here under a tree and caused him to fall into a deep sleep. I don't need you, Abraham, to keep this covenant. I'm making this promise to you. I will, I will, I will, I will, I will. You just sit there and receive it as a blessing of God. In you, all the families of the earth will be blessed because I'm going to bring Messiah through you. I'm going to save the nations. I'm going to save your descendants, not you. Amen. Oh, what a great God we have. That's mercy. That's grace. We get all the blessings, don't have to do the work. Christ did the work. You really think you're going to add to Christ? I don't think so. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for grace. Help us to understand grace. It's not something that um, is easy for us to accept. We um, have such a good opinion of ourselves <clears throat> that uh, we think there must be something I can contribute to this whole salvation process. Don't I have to believe? Don't I have to repent? To be sure we do, but is the faith that acknowledges Christ, is the repentance that turns us away from our sin which we love and are by nature, are those innate in man or are they the gifts of God? Scripture teaches us, Lord,